presented by Meta. Hey, how's it going? I'm Playbook Editor Mike DeBonis. Happy Monday. Something a little different today to preview the week. I'm joined by Playbook Deputy Editor Zach Stanton for today's Playbook Daily Briefing. Okay, Zach, we're two weeks and a day out from Election Day. One of the things that you personally are obsessive about tracking (laughs) are the early voting totals uh, ahead of Election Day. And according to the trackers that we follow, and you can tell us about uh, who gathers this information, we already have more than 7 million votes, 7.5 million votes as of Sunday afternoon. Uh, What should we make of this? So I think that there are a couple things to make of it. The first is that the pandemic has really changed the ways that people vote. Uh, you know, I think people got accustomed during the pandemic briefly uh, as our experience with it was in this particular respect. They got used to voting absentee. They got used to voting early. The trends that we saw in 2020 in some ways are coming to pass again in 2022. The numbers that I look at are aggregated by Michael McDonald, a uh, professor of political science at University of Florida, who oversees this thing called the United States Election Project, which aggregates data from secretary of states and election offices throughout the country, pretty much throughout the day, every day between now and the election. Seven and a half million was their count uh, as of Sunday night. And we see in some states that this is surpassing the 2020 levels of early voting. Georgia Uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger sent out a press release on Sunday afternoon saying that through the first six days, the early turnout in Georgia has now uh, eclipsed the 2020 turnout. They have 816,000 early votes cast already uh, compared to 812,000 at the same point in 2020. So it's going to be interesting to see how this actually ends up affecting uh, the race and and, and once we get actual information about who it is that's that's voting early. Right. So, yeah, these are huge numbers, but there's a couple unanswered questions, one of which is, do you have the same partisan split between early voters and day of election day voters that we saw in 2020, where Democrats overwhelmingly voted early uh, or by absentee ballot and Republicans overwhelmingly voted on election day? And it's it seems like it's too early to tell if the same split is the case. It absolutely is. Um, it is worth noting, however, that there was a, an interesting Associated Press story over the weekend about how uh, there are certain Republican activists who have glommed on to different unfounded and baseless conspiracy theories about early voting, uh, specifically this, I believe, new theory that uh, if Republicans vote early, uh, the numbers in which they would vote would uh, alarm elections officials such that elections officials would then move to try and rig the election. Uh, This is a baseless theory uh, that has, you know, no, it is not rooted in reality. But as part of this, the AP noted, there is now this strategy among certain segments of the right to vote in person on election day, or if you have received a, a mailed ballot, uh, to hold on to it and to bring it in in person uh, at a polling place uh, on November 8th. I don't know uh, to, to what degree that is right. actually uh, uh, catching fire on the right, uh, but it is notable that you know Democrats have made an effort, I think, to to really get their voters to turn out early. You know, part of the thinking, of course, is that it's really helpful when it comes to uh, GOTV efforts in the final couple of weeks of an election. If 
if you have people that you know are going to vote for you already voting, then you can kind of eliminate them from the universe of people you need to keep on contacting. Right. You, know, you don't need Absolutely. to continue to go to them and drive them to the polls. You can sort of expand the universe of people that you're focusing on and maybe going to people who are, you know, a little bit iffy about voting, but you think are would be with you if they do cast a ballot, or you can go to to persuading if if you want and, and try and go for some of those voters that may still be on the fence. The other unanswered question is, does this overwhelming early vote turnout indicate anything about turnout generally? Is this going to be a high turnout election historically for a midterm? And we actually have some indications that that may be the case, including an, a new NBC News poll that showed that 70% of registered voters rated their interest in the upcoming election as a nine or a 10 on a 10 point scale. And that is uh, a pretty remarkable outcome when, you know, typically we've seen significant fall off in voter interest in midterms versus presidential years. Yeah, absolutely. And and that NBC number, uh, one of the things that was notable about it was that that's actually uh, a much higher percentage uh, of registered voters who who rated the election as that interesting to them, a much higher percentage than did in the midterms uh, in 2018 uh, in polls by NBC. And the midterms in 2018 had a uh, pretty substantial turnout as well. So we may just be, uh, you know, now in just a cycle after cycle uh, uh, pattern of very high turnout elections. A couple of things to watch out for this week. I think the big narrative sort of last week was the environment shifting back towards Republicans after this sort of late summer surge by Democrats. Um, we saw polls tightening in, in some of these key Senate races, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Georgia. But, you know, there's still time for Democrats and for Republicans, too, to persuade some voters to turn out and vote for their candidate. And one of the biggest things that can do that are debates. And we have a really uh, intense slate of debates coming this week, including last night, Sunday night, when uh, I spent part of my evening uh, upstairs watching the uh, Patty Murray versus Tiffany Smiley Washington State Senate debate while my wife was downstairs watching Stanley Tucci. So um, <laughs> we'll see who who had the more entertaining experience. Um <laughs> It was a pre- it was a pretty tame affair. I didn't watch the whole thing. I watched you know probably half of it. Uh, the thing I was struck by was just um, how Republicans really got a, a high quality challenger to a, a really entrenched incumbent in Patty Murray, who's been in the Senate now for uh, of thirty years, but. Washington state is still a pretty blue state. She's got an uphill battle to fight. And, you know, Patty Murray is very effective in sort of talking about the national stakes for, you know, Republican control of Congress versus Democratic control of Congress. So, Mike, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Washington is is actually something that uh, I think is also the case in Colorado, which is that in some of these sort of reach races for Republicans, ones that may not be on the traditional you know, battlefield map exactly. They aren't. They aren't like battleground states in quite the same way as an Arizona or a Nevada. Um, but in both the Murray race and in the the Michael Bennett race, Republicans have sort of had the best case scenario in terms of who the Republican candidate is, in a way that uh, that is a little bit different than the Republican candidates you've seen emerge in some of these most intensely watched and and hard fought races. 
do you have any idea as to why that is, or or do you even agree with that assessment? Yeah, no, I agree with that, and I think the the glib explanation is is that Donald Trump didn't really care about those races, or didn't. Um, mm. I don't believe that he uh, involved himself at all in the Washington race and the Colorado race. Um, there was a Trumpier challenger to Joe O'Day, the moderate who won. But I, I think the other sort of explanation is that voters in those states, Republican voters, even if they are very conservative or very Trumpy, know that you know they're in 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 blue tinted states and they need they they can't win with with that kind of nominee and they voted uh sort of pragmatically. Uh there was a lot of reporting particularly out of Colorado that uh, a lot of Republican voters uh voted for O'Day sort of set aside their own desires for a more mm-hmm. conservative candidate uh, in in the hopes of, you know, getting the best uh, possible uh, challenger to Michael Bennett, which really Republican primary voters elsewhere in the country have not done. Um, and I right. think that that's, you know, you, you could look at Trump's influence and his willingness to uh, go in and sort of not only endorse candidates, but really attack more moderate Republican candidates. You saw it in, like, say, the Pennsylvania governor's race where he got behind the, you know, Doug Mastriano, who seems to be on track to a landslide loss next week, you know, while attacking other more moderate uh, Republicans who might have done a better job competing in that state. And now it's interesting because he's now in Colorado basically crapping on Joe O'Day, saying that he did, mm-hmm. you know, it was a mistake to nominate him and you shouldn't support him. And he's basically doing his job to sort of tamp down conservative Republican turnout. Um, I guess O'Day is hoping that this sort of sends a message to more independent voters, suburban voters, that he, he actually isn't Trumpy and he is somebody they can trust uh, in Washington not to sort of take that line. It's interesting. You know, as you note, Donald Trump sort of stepped in and is trying to tamp down on uh I don't know, excitement about Joe O'Day. And one of the things that we actually saw just this past weekend uh, is that uh, after it was reported that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was recording a robocall for Joe O'Day, Trump took to Truth Social uh, and uh, and tweeted a story about the robocall and simply captioned it in all caps, a big mistake, exclamation point. I think, you know, that'll be something to watch here uh, is whether or not uh, this ends up being the thing that actually brings the Trump versus DeSantis Cold War uh, into full bloom. Right. And speaking of Ron DeSantis, he is running for re-election as governor this year, and he has his one and only debate against Democrat Charlie Crist uh, tonight at 7 p.m. It's going to be an interesting debate, probably because Crist has been behind in pretty much every poll that's been published over the past month or two. And he's really under pressure to sort of make a splash and sort of change the trajectory of this race. So that'll be an interesting one to watch. Tomorrow, we have um, Michael Bennett and Joe O'Day uh, debating at 8 p.m. And then on Thursday, we have a race that sort of slipped under the radar recently, but is actually a really interesting one up in Alaska with incumbent Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski um, against fellow Republican uh, Kelly Shabaka and other challengers in this uh, ranked choice voting race. This is really an, an interesting race where Lisa Murkowski is basically courting independents and Democrats, while Kelly Shabaka is going after conservative Republicans. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out on the debate stage. On Friday, uh, Michael Bennett and Joe O'Day meet again to second debate in uh, four days. But if there's one debate this week that's really going to garner the most attention, it's in Pennsylvania. It's the one debate between 
between the Democratic Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman and Republican Mehmet Oz, uh, 8pm. This is just incredibly uh, highly anticipated. Zach, you know, kind of weigh out everything that is sort of at stake in this debate. Sure. So, you know, John Fetterman, as I think is pretty widely known, had a stroke earlier this year in the heat of the campaign. And there have been lingering questions that have dogged his campaign in the months since about about his health, basically, and, and about his ability to perform the job as senator. And, you know, his campaign and and he have been pretty adamant about trying to dispel any any hesitation about about whether or not he is fully competent or, or able to execute the job uh, of U.S. Senator. Uh, they've noted that you know he is totally fine to do interviews, but at this stage in his recovery, he needs uh, the assistance of live captioning, um, which is a pretty common thing in, in stroke recovery, as I understand. Uh, and so he will be out to cross a basic threshold of competence and ability. And, you know, one of his challenges that he's going to face here, of course, is that uh, Mehmet Oz isn't just, you know, a normal Republican candidate. You know, he's a guy who's extraordinarily comfortable uh, in front of a TV camera. And that will be an interesting dynamic to watch. Uh, You know, the Pennsylvania race has tightened substantially uh, over the last month, uh, such that it's now within a couple points, and uh, both candidates are routinely polling in the mid to high 40s. So this is a race that could actually really affect not only the outcome of the Pennsylvania Senate race, uh, but really balance of control in the U.S. Senate. Yeah, it's really hard to overstate <laughs> how big this debate is. And, you know, it was one thing when, uh, you know, John Furman agreed to this debate a few weeks ago, uh, when he had a pretty significant lead in the polls, uh, that since eroded. We always talk about the expectations game around this, and and it's just it's so hard to even wonder what the expectations are, given this uh, the health challenges that he's uh, faced. It's been really uh, a central sort of theme of of his campaign over these past few weeks, and it, we're we're going to see how this um, sort of speech to text. Um, device that he's going to be using affects the the sort of perceptions of, of this, of him, of this debate. But there's a lot on the line and he's got to make his uh, his points about Oz. He's got to, you know, sort of defend against these attacks that he's been taking uh, on television ads, particularly on crime. And uh, I'm going to be tuning in. I'm sure a lot of other people, not even in Pennsylvania, are going to be tuning in considering what the high stakes are. Totally. I'll be watching Tuesday at 8. Zach Stanton, Playbook Deputy Editor. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Be sure to subscribe to the Playbook newsletter if you haven't. Our music is composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Mike DeBonis. Thanks for listening. Some people say the metaverse will only be virtual. One day, farmers will use augmented reality to monitor the health of their soil and run irrigation simulations to help ensure the best yields. And urban planners will model traffic solutions in the metaverse to help decrease commute times, paving the way for less congested cities. The metaverse may be virtual, but the impact will be real. Learn more about what Meta is building for the metaverse at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.